You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, August the 11th, a beautiful day as well. Some people think this is a slightly quiet spell in racing in the summer. Far from it. It's all going on, or should I say it's all going off in the United States with the news, and not unexpected either, that the Preakness Stakes is set to move. It's set to move, so there's a gap of four weeks between the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, which has rather forced the Belmont Stakes hand, but at the moment... The New York Racing Association are saying they're not going anywhere. Watch this space. D. Wayne Lucas, 87-year-old Hall of Famer with six Preaknesses and four derbies under his belt, gives his thoughts on why he feels it's the right move to shift the middle jewel of America's Triple Crown. But to what extent is that whole entity under some threat? We'll be discussing that later in the programme. It is a Triple Group 1 weekend here in Europe. We've got the Prix-Jacques Le Marois. The most prestigious mile race in France taking place at Deauville. And our French correspondent Adrien Cunias catches up with the owner of Angers, Guillaume de Saint-Seine, who could yet become a very significant figure in French racing and bloodstock, widely tipped to take over from Edouard de Rothschild when his tenure ends as the president of France Gallo. Joe Marrera is one of the world's most celebrated riders. He's at Ascot this weekend for the Shergar Cup. We'll be hearing from him as well. Plus, we'll be looking ahead to the Keeneland Phoenix Stakes and the Grosser Price von Berlin. What's been happening at the National Horse Racing Museum? And we'll be talking to the chief executive of the National Stad, Anna Kerr, about joining the judging panel for the Godolphin Thoroughbred Industry and Employee Award. So you could say this show is something of an international smorgasbord which is appropriate enough because Lydia Hislop, who's with me today, has just come back from Sweden. Uh, Lydia, how did you enjoy it? It was great. I really enjoyed it. I was over there for uh, a European Patent Committee meeting and the day before the meeting, we were able to go to Bro Park, which is the first time I've been racing in Sweden. Have you been to Sweden? I've never been to Sweden, let alone racing in Sweden. Everybody says I must. What was it like? Uh, I'm going to start with the customer experience first because that was really excellent um so um you arrive it's it's quite a compact well set out track and as a customer you feel very very welcome they've got a restaurant there which is open as a restaurant on non-race days that's how good it is and you can go along and sit and have a great view of the racetrack while you eat um the food was excellent it was very sort of healthy and varied uh, you you um and this is this comment is aimed at racecourses in britain you ate off real plates using real cutlery and drank from real glasses and it cost you just about just 11 pounds um it was just a well judged cosy decor it was just a really nice place to be free tea and coffee alongside it um free water which you would expect obviously but um that's only latterly latterly come to britain you can still get the plastic plastic sized bottled stuff but it was just a great experience really really positive customer experience very civilized what about the racing this was kind of a midweek meeting in britain we'd call it kind of a, a journeyman meeting they hold you know much more high profile deeper better graded races on other days so i didn't necessarily see its racing per se in its absolute um best light but i still it was still very enjoyable there is no whip in the scandinavia so i was interested to see how those races 
panned out and um they race the, the the fields race a lot more loosely which is something i'd observe from looking at scandinavian racing um since uh, the the uh, whiprawl came in one steward assured me that the higher the value of race the more tightly the the jockeys race together which would be possibly similar uh, around the world um and the other final thing to note is um the number of female jockeys about about 50% of all license holders are female. Um, looking at the riders there, uh, to make a generalisation, a, a large number of young um, women riders, and also some some riders who looked as though they perhaps they were developing a second career in Sweden. Um, yeah, it was it was it was it was very interesting. I mm. really enjoyed it, and I would urge people to go. So, from Scandinavian racing, relatively uncharted on this pod, to somewhere much more familiar. Uh, North America, where the Triple Crown may well be undergoing significant change. I'm not sure it was the intention of First Racing to announce this this weekend, but their hand has rather been forced, and it came out in the Thoroughbred Daily News yesterday that the Preakness Stakes was likely to move, and it was likely to move so there would be a four-week gap between the Derby and the Preakness rather than the existing two-week gap. That, of course, would put it right up on top of the Belmont Stakes, which sort of necessitates a move from... Naira, the parent company of the Belmont Stakes, in order for the Triple Crown to be viable, they're saying they're not going anywhere for the time being. So we are at an impasse. The Kentucky Derby has been won four times by 87-year-old Hall of Famer D. Wayne Lucas. The Preakness Stakes six times. Once only has he won both races in the same year. He's also won the Belmont Stakes a further four times, including with a Kentucky Derby winner. So this doyen really is the perfect person to ask whether... He supports the move of the Preakness to allow horses greater recovery time from the Derby and to keep the Triple Crown alive. This is what he had to say. I've been an advocate of having uh, the Derby the first Saturday in May and then a Memorial Day weekend for the Preakness and then the 4th of July weekend for the Belmont and then the Traverse in a August date, you know, mid-August. I thought you could make a festival, festival center three, four days around those holidays with those giant races. So I think I think this proposal would mean that the, the Preakness hit Memorial Day occasionally, but not always. But I guess the principle behind it is to have the longer gap to give horses that bit more recovery time after the Derby and get more yeah. horses going to the Preakness. Yeah, yeah, with today's mindset, and especially some of the younger trainers, they, uh, they prefer, you know, more distance between the races. And, of course, the, the Kentucky Derby is, is as tough on a three-year-old as any of them you're going to run into. So bouncing back in two weeks uh, is very difficult. It's been very good to me, very good to Baffert, but it hasn't been very good to many of the other guys. So I... Uh, I think that if you would, if you stretch it out to four weeks or nearly four weeks, you would, uh, you would probably keep the Derby field pretty much intact. And like most years, there'll be 20 trying to get in the Derby or 22 or 23, and then you get the Precus, there'll be two of them want to run in the Precus. Yeah, people who are opposing it are talking about tradition, but I was actually looking back through and I think eight of the Triple Crown winners were not actually Triple Crown winners under the current um, confirmation of it anyway. So it, it's a, a, bit, a bit of a moot point. There were people that thought the three 
three-point shot would ruin basketball, too. There were people that thought the designated hitter was going to absolutely, uh, you know, ruin baseball. They thought that the two-point conversion in football was ridiculous. Tradition said they had one, a one-point, you know. Come on. So I guess I guess there's going to be some politics at play here now as well because one race course, one racetrack group, the first to played their hand first, or at least it's been leaked, and they've had they've had to say they're going to do it. I mean, would your advice be to Naira, right? Come on, just just shift the Belmont, and everyone's happy. I would I would think it would help. Here's the deal. My thing on this is that. Churchill is going to stay with the Derby. You're not going to move that one. If the Preakness decides to run later and goes ahead with it, I think the Belmont is going to be a very, very small field every year. Mm. Unless they unless they move it. Yes. I think it will really make the Belmont a small field because as trainers, I think that, that we prefer the per- Progression of you know those shorter races before we get into the mile and a half. Hmm. You see what I mean? I do. A I mile do. Mile and a quarter, plenty. You actually probably should go a mile and an eighth, a mile and three sixteenths, and then a mile and a quarter. I think if they would do that, now break up condition there. That would really break it up. But that it makes more sense with today's horses, the way they're being bred for speed and confirmation instead of distance. Shorten the Derby to a mile and eight. Put the Preakness, give them another sixteenth out there, like it is. That's what it, you know. And then run the uh, the uh, Belmont at a mile and a quarter. That. I think makes more sense and then have the distance between them. You would get a fan base, you'd get a following, you would get full field. All of that makes sense, but it's it's too simple. It makes too much sense for the traditionalists. D. Wayne Lucas with just the six editions of the Preakness Stakes and four Kentucky Derbies to his name, 87 years old, um, still practicing at at the very highest level as well, albeit with nowhere near as big a string as he used to. It's it's somewhat ironic, Lydia, that that someone so absolutely rooted in the traditions of these two triple crown races should be, you know, a perfectly willing advocate of of change. Yes, um, and advocating further change uh, potentially. Uh, let's let's talk about what's what is actually on the table. Um, he, I, I, I can see the spacing out of these race, races. I, I was intrigued by your point that actually inverted commas traditionalists are hanging on to a form of the triple crown that actually isn't that traditional. You made that point to, to D. Wayne Lucas? Yeah, it's the, basically the the sort of late 60s onwards is, is where the current spacing has come from. The eight triple crown winners before that were all varying distance. I mean, sometimes the prints that take place, you know, a few days after the Derby, you know, less than a week or eight days or four days. And then the Belmont would have a four week gap after that or a three week gap after that. So the first eight triple crown winners were all completely different spacing between the first three races. So the idea that it's been set in stone forever and a day is wrong. I like the idea of spacing out 
the, the these races i can see that that will encourage uh field sizes that will allow more time for for recovery which as the way lucas was pointing out seems to be the, the trend in in america and elsewhere in the world i'm interested by the preakness and the belmont basically setting up themselves up against each other and my perception from the outside is that belmont is kind of re uh, relying on its prestige but of course it's got the the mile and a half element, which is seen as some incredibly marathon distance over in America. If we can return to the end of Dwayne Lucas's uh, conversation with you after we've talked about this, that would be great. But yeah, how do you see Belmont, the Belmont versus the Preakness matching up there with, um, you know, the Belmont saying, well, we're not for moving and the Preakness, this story having sort of leaked out, having already committed to it? Well, I mean, I've got a vested interest because I, I work for one of the broadcasters. So uh, I work for NBC, who cover the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. Fox now covers the Belmont Stakes. Uh, so we're now on two different networks, and you're talking about two different uh, racing uh, families as well, the first racing family and the Naira racing family. And you know, none, of, none of these big um, US racetrack conglomerates like to be um, manoeuvred around the park by the other. So I think I don't think first wanted this to be released now. I think they were seeking some level of cooperation with with Naira before they before they 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 went with this. But you know now you've got the sort of toing and froing being played out in public. I mean I think if the Preakness is going to move, it may, it just makes complete sense for the Belmont to 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 shift shift a couple of weeks back. And I, I don't think there's a there's a major issue with that unless the broadcaster says we absolutely can't show it. Yeah, so it sounds like were they all on the same on the same channel, this might be a little bit easier. Well, it'd be interesting to to see how that pans out and whether the the Preakness um, t turns turns the whole conversation up to eleven by injecting a lot of cash. Well, that's the other thing, and that's the that I, I've maintained for a long time that one of the reasons that the that these the the second two legs of the Triple Crown um, are, are starting to lose a little bit of relevance is because there simply isn't enough money on the table. Um, particularly when you look at it in the context of what's available in the Middle East and Australia and um, what's available for the Breeders' Cup Classic, for example. I think there needs there needs to be more cash um, yeah. in a crude, vulgar way. And Mike Rapoli was saying much the same on the podcast earlier earlier in the year. Yes, I heard, I heard him say that that to you last week. If we could move to what DOA was saying about about um, distances, he said a mile and a quarter is plenty, and really he advocated the triple crown three legs to be over a mile and an eighth, a mile and three sixteenths, and ten furlongs rather than the range over which it is currently. Now, um, I, you know, I in in this argument, I would fall into his traditional uh, traditionalist camp, which of whom he was quite scathing he said that this would allow people to get a, a fan base uh, but it makes too much sense for the traditionalists um but there's a there is a a matter of, of principle here it's about moving away from the staying hall america led that way already this would be even more extreme is the homo homogenization of the breed to its own long-term detriment in my opinion and i personally as a fan would find moving from a mile and eighth in in two in two further stages to 10 furlongs less of a challenge less interesting i'm all for making the triple crown more um more feasible by spacing the races out but to make it a slam dunk where it happens year in year out to me seems more dull not less well the thing under his quadruple crown plans to include the saratoga's traverse stakes at the at the back end of this and have that a month further on maybe you could have that as the mile and a half Mile and a half final leg of the quadruple crown. I don't know. All on all on public holidays. 
Um, either way, it's, it's nice to hear. It's it's so refreshing, that, isn't it, to hear someone who has been in the game so long still think in such a young way. I I agree, but I also think that uh, many um, racehorse trainers um, value stamina far, far, far too lightly. And until um, trainers and owners uh, start to um, think about what the impact of uh, basically phasing out that element of the breed it will be on on its own long-term health and thereby um, enabling breeders to be confident to breed those horses, uh, then I think I think we're in trouble. Uh, I think it's 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 it, quite often um, some major figures in the horse racing industry worldwide. I'm not singling anybody out. Have been far too flippant about mile and a half stamina, mile and a half plus stamina. And there's a number of trainers. If you go back over. Uh, and some of them in Britain, who go back over over their statements about that kind of thing, who have valued those kind of horses too lightly. And I think that is to the detriment of the sport, the detriment of the breed. Well, just talking about the commercial stud value of horses, arguably the most important race run anywhere in the world this weekend is the Prix d'Arrow Le Frenet de Bouffage at Mawa at Deauville. That takes place just after 3.25 British summertime. And it features a, a whole host of the season's Leading Milers, a triple time, the Queen Anne winner, Erevan, Jean-Claude Rouget in Spiral, the defending champion, uh, Big Rock, and also Angers. Angers trained by Mario Baratti, one of the young breed of trainers uh, setting up in France who are making quite a significant impression. And one of the owners of Angers is Guillaume de Saint-Seine, who is becoming an increasingly prominent figure in French racing and bloodstock. And he's been sharing his excitement at taking part in one of France's most a significant races with Adrian Cunhas from Jour de Gallo. Oh, but it's, uh, it's an extraordinary moment. You know, uh, every race is important uh, when you've got a starter, a, a runner. Uh, but of course, I think the, the, when you look at the winners of the Jacques Le Marois over the last uh, 20 years and, and you know, the, the great names that have then performed that stud, uh, you're, 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 you know, you're part of the elite. And uh, what is great is to be able to do that in partnership. We are uh, six partners on Angers, uh, four of them at 20% to at 10%. Uh, it's a horse that we bought uh, through Thierry Deleg at, uh, at a very reasonable price. And uh, after his uh, very convincing win in the, the German uh, 2000 guineas, it's clearly uh, it's, a, it's a great, great moment to be uh, at you know, a, a runner in, in what is maybe one of the most prestigious Group 1 races in, in France, maybe with the Arc de Triomphe and, of course, with the uh, classics of the early part of the season. The, the, the great story about this horse is that it's really for the sport because you, your group of owners, you had many offers and you turn all them down and you're not playing shy. You're really running the big race. It's really a, a, a sportsman attitude. Uh, thank you, Adrien. Yes, uh, I think that, you know, uh, you don't have an opportunity to, to run a horse like that, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> every other day when you, uh, I have the equivalent. I've got uh, partnerships in, in a little bit over 10 horses. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, having a, a starter in the Jacques Le Marois, like we were in the past fortunate to have a winner of a group one with the right man. I was also in racing syndicates with... Um, uh, Everest racing recently with Malavat, with Lindy this year. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I think this uh, sort of shared ownership 
it is developing, you know, for which France Gallo has done a lot of efforts, uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, procedure and process to, to allow the owners to, to have their, their colors or, or to be registered, uh, it, it is, uh, is a an important avenue to 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 renew uh, i would say the ownership in france uh, we see that uh, you know certain uh, large uh, stables are reducing their their um, their participation uh, adrien you i think you were writing about the wildenstein family uh, we luckily still have some very more horses in france uh, but it has nothing to do with uh, you know 20 20 30 years ago same thing goes for uh, for the Nyarkos uh, colors. Uh, and I think that if we want to renew and, and have uh, you know, still more horses in training, uh, co-ownership, partnerships, uh, syndicates are, are a great way forward. Uh, and that's why I'm participating in them at the same time as having a direct ownership or a partnership in, in horses. But I'm also a breeder. Uh, so, uh, but that is another side of the, uh, of the sport. Well, I think that... Uh, uh, the racing scene is changing. We've got new trainers also. Uh, I think that you know there are some uh, trainers. Uh, and the example of Alain Royer Dupré recently uh, shows that uh, voilà, he, uh, he retired, uh, and we must uh, uh, the, the results uh, that some young French trainers are achieving. You know, of course, Francis Graffard has been uh, at the forefront, but also, uh, uh, of course. Uh, Henri Francois Devin, but now, uh, given his, uh, you know, his track record in, in the Maurice de Guest last week, uh, a trainer like Nicolas Collery, I think these this young and emerging generation deserves to receive uh, horses in training from uh, some of the big big operations that we have, uh, and where we know that they are um, important and count a lot in terms of uh, horses in training in, in Europe. Something I really admire about your profile as an owner, of course, you have horses with very fashionable international trainers such as Christophe Ferland and, and Francis Graffard, like Lindy Malavat or, or The Fixer, which run in Royal Ascot. But you had great success with horses, with trainers, probably not very well known outside of France. The right money was trained by Didier Guimain, which is, in my opinion, one of the best trainers in France and one of the most underrated. And Angers is trained by Mario Baratti. Could you give me a few words about who is Mario Baratti? Uh, Mario Baratti is uh, has had a you know a very very uh, distinguished uh, uh, role as as assistant uh, in Newmarket. He's worked in the U.S. and uh, you know I think that uh, the attractiveness of French racing means that there are a number of uh, foreign trainers who have decided to 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 you know settle in Chantilly. I like in with him and, and other younger trainers. Uh, or the new generation, should I say, is uh, the fact that they, they have in their yard uh, a, a working climate where you feel that the horses are, I don't want to use the wrong word, not peaceful, but you know, they are, um, you feel that they are working in, in confidence, that, there is, uh, that they are well treated, and well looked after, and that there is no tension, if I may say. Of course, there's a tension for the result. We are but you don't you you shouldn't transmit uh, uh, this this tension uh, around the, the 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 willingness to win uh, to 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 the horses and, and voilà, you you see them walking relaxed and and when a string of horses of mario uh, passes by you don't have horses who who uh, 
are are tense, are are nervous. This year we talk an awful lot about the French competitiveness and the fact that probably we had a couple of difficult years. And this year, French train horses are and French bred horses with Paddington. Uh, are winning a lot of races. What do you think about suddenly the French winning all the group races at home? These, uh, this, this younger generation uh, has got uh, fantastic uh, settings to, to, to succeed, uh, Chantilly being one, but also uh, uh, the training uh, centers that we have uh, all around France. And uh, I, I think it should be uh, you know, a testimony. Uh, this, the results this year, of course, of Christopher Red uh, that I forgot to mention apologies uh, uh, show that uh, you know when you've got but uh, voilà, horses bought in France should maybe uh, in the future stay more in training in France uh, that uh, great and, and I think the new generation is showing that they can uh, be extremely successful Guillaume de Saint-Saint talking to Adrien Cunhas about Sunday's Jacques Lemarois Lydia a stellar lineup for this race How do you see it panning out? It looks fascinating, doesn't it? Uh, Triple Time potentially making his first appearance since the Queen Anne. He wouldn't want the ground to be too soft. That seemed to be a negative for him in the Daniel Wildenstein last season. And he was quite well positioned in the Queen Anne. Last year's winner in Spiral, who blew out in the Sussex Stakes, probably hating the heavy ground and getting racing over towards the standstill far too early. I, as a regular listener to the pub will know, I've got a doubt about her attitude. I think she's not hardy. I think she's increasingly not straightforward. So I'd have my doubts about her. It would be a good thing for last year's second um, light infantry who chased her home and has run well in the Isfahan and the Queen Anne. And I'm really interested by Big Rock, who seems to be steadily improving. That win in the Shanti Group 3 was good and then a better again last time when second in the pre du jockey club i wonder whether it might be big rock coming from left field but there are there are other interesting runners as well high royal who's been placed in a couple of guineas and for some reason rather than going forward when dropped in trip over seven furlongs was more patiently ridden that didn't seat him i think back up in trip with a more positive ride that's going to help erivan um has got better form last season so far compared with this And it will be interesting if Marahaba Yasanafi runs because, again, he is steadily improving. Another three-year-old who is, who is, who is interesting in, in this kind of context. Um, good guess. Do you believe the Jean Pratt win? Uh, I'm not sure is the honest answer. What I do know is I think Unquestionable is already past the post in the uh, Keeneland Phoenix Stakes at the Curra on Saturday. Ah, okay. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you're keen on, keen on that horse. I've been looking at the Grosser Pre-Von Berlin in Hopkarten, and that looks like a really interesting race. Surely the Grosser Price von Berlin. Price, sorry. Price. Sorry, the correct pronunciation. Anyway, <laughs> that. Uh, this was the race last year that Charlie Appleby and James Doyle won with Rebels Romance. And, of course, Charlie Appleby has recently enjoyed Group 1 success in Germany with Nations Pride under an excellent ride from... Um, William Buick, that was in, in Munich, beat the German derby winner, Fantastic Moon. Um, this time, they're teaming up with New London. We've only seen him once so far this season. He was a bit disappointed when third of five beaten favourite in the Fred Archer listed level 
at the July course at the start of July, but uh, Charlie Appleby was pretty positive about that, talking about a good first step to an autumn campaign. Um, he's going to be, he's got some significant opposition here. Sinka Mil, who was going to run in the King George and didn't get, run because of, of the ground. Well, he's got a, a very strong chance, second in the Gane, a dual Group 2 winner. And Estestant, the Mount of Thor Hammer Hansen, is really interesting. I think he's improved this season. He's a dual Group 1, Group 2 winner already. He probably will stay further. And I think he is going to be a strong op opponent for New London. Um, last year's uh, German derby winner, Samako, doesn't seem to have quite hit the same form. And Sifahan, um, who was in, has got very good form against Torquato Tasso and Alpinista back in 2021, similar comments apply. And Lady Irulina, there's a three-year-old filly in the race. Um, who began her career in Poland. She was withdrawn from the German Oaks last time, seventh in the Prix de Diane. I'll be interested to see how she fares against the older horses. So a triple header of European Group 1s, the Jacques Le Marois at Deauville in Hoppergarten in Germany, the Grosser Price Fond Berlin and the Keeneland Phoenix Stakes at the Curra. Of course, British interest will be centred around Ascot and the Shergar Cup, the now famous International Jockeys Challenge. Good lineup this year. Frankie Dettori will be there. So too will Joe Moreira, the man who was a multiple champion in Hong Kong, sort of half tried to retire, had some surgery, feels good again, and is now trying to manage the, the conclusion to his career. He shared his thoughts on that with, with Charlotte Greenway yesterday at Ascot. What I can say, I was really struggling with my my hip. Now I'm okay. I've, I've just said to some friends there that I've, I've got a team of doctors working on it with me. They put me into a shape which I, I can feel like, hmm, can do a bit longer. But I, I can feel like I can do at least another 18 months if things stay still the same. But doctors do say that I it's not gonna get any better so I've been I was more struggling psychologically which now I'm so much better now up here in my mind now I'm in such a good shape which I'm uh, so excited to be on the horses back every time that I get on so Joe Marrera feeling good in himself if he does extend his career and he wants to go further afield maybe back to Hong Kong Australia Dubai could a job here in the UK be in the offing I'm not sure if I would grab a lot of attention on my riding style of people that actually are based over here because uh, here I see the jockeys being more bouncy on the horses back, not being critical. In fact, I'm trying to say that they have just a different riding style and I think that looks like a little bit more impressive, more energetic on the horses back. However, if you look at the American style, in particular North Americans, they are very steady and very strong when they're pushing, but their body is more stabilized on the horse's back. Probably has got something to do with the, the surface that they race at. America, they race a lot on the dirt, and here yeah. most of the races on the turf. And considering the type of surface that they race at, I think that the jockeys from the past has adapted themselves into that kind of style of racing um, so we, as, as I have started in Brazil in South America we kind of uh, inspire ourselves quite a lot in the American jockeys just want to leave it very clear that I wasn't critical about their riding <laughs> style but I, I was kind of trying to compare the difference different. Be yeah. between them all 
And just talking about riding styles, obviously you've got new rules to adapt to on Saturday riding over here. There's been a lot of talk about our whip rules uh, recently, the new rules have come in, six strikes and the final two furlongs. Is that something that's going to be hard for you to adapt to, do you think? It's not, because like in Australia, you're only allowed to use the whip five times prior to the last 200. Like, uh, the world is changing, even in Brazil, which is a third world country, that is a rule, whip rules implemented just recently as well, where jockeys are not allowed to use the whip more than eight times, and that is penalties if you do use the whips and can get severe as, as well as it does get over here. So it's a change which I see as a good thing for, for the sports, uh, in particular for the horses, and um, I don't see that as any problem for myself. And just looking ahead as well to tomorrow, you've been here twice before, you've had three wins, it's been pretty successful on your trips. What is it that you enjoy about the day, the sort of atmosphere? Is it different to anything else you've been to? Well, you, when, you, when you come from overseas, either you come with a horse for the big races, or you come invited by, by the jurisdiction to be part of these kind of events, which is the Jockey Challenge. So as mentioned, I've been here, I think, twice or three times before, and in those circumstances so it makes you feel like okay you've got something special and you're being spot by such a massive jurisdiction like this one and then no doubt makes you be very proud of yourself um, however just don't forget that I'll be riding with some of the best jockeys in the world Frankie is, is in my opinion the best jockey ever of the sport been watching him riding since when I was apprentice and uh, uh, when I do get a chance and opportunity to be riding with him of course I feel very proud of it. Joe Moreira there looking ahead to tomorrow's Shergar Cup in the company of Charlotte Greenway. Now much of this week's newsprint has been devoted to further scrutiny of the Gambling Commission as it attempts to enact recommendations from the government's white paper and launching a consultation process on affordability checks. Lydia, uh, what are the uh, key points to come out of uh, this week's coverage? Earlier in the week, um, Philip Davis, the Conservative MP, said that the racing industry had been complacent in their um, reaction to the uh, white paper during the whole white paper process and is still now during the uh, period of um, consultation that the Gambling Commission has got to run in response to the government's white paper. Um, Philip Davis was also not just critical of the racing industry, but critical of the Gambling Commission. He called them the most out-of-touch regulator, and that's a strong field. He called, called um, their proposals embarrassing, and he called them zealots, and he urged government to get a grip of the Gambling Commission. There have been other Severe critics of the Gambling Commission this week, uh, Peter Jackson, the Chief Executive Officer of Flutter, um, raised doubts about whether what the Gambling Commission is proposing in terms of financial checks, as they would call them, um, whether they are frictionless in the way that the government said that they would be. And I, I share Peter Jackson's um, uh, concerns there. I mean, frictionless is a myth anyway. We saw that over Brexit and the and the the, uh, the Irish border. Um, it's a sort of far off paradise that uh, you know rely on technology that ministers often do when they haven't got any practical solutions. Um, and it's going to have it, it, it's clear that the arbitrary triggers for affordability um, are are not 
are onerous and very much not frictionless. So that's a myth. And Peter Jackson has highlighted that. And then in today's Racing Post, the Betfair co-founder, Andrew Black, is also the owner of Chase Moore Farm. Um, he's a he's a, a breeder of racehorses. Um, he made several points. He called for an impact study to assess the effects of affordability checks on the racing and gambling industries. I felt this was a very good point, And it's a question for government, really, and one for Lucy Fraser and Stuart Andrew um, to answer, Lucy Fraser being the Secretary of State. Um, has there been an been a an impact study to, to assess the impact if not why not if so what did it say and why isn't it why don't we know about it um, Andrew Black has also highlighted the lack of direct gambling experience on the gambling commission board he's compared it unfavorably with the financial conduct authority and he's likened the gambling commission to the Spanish inquisition which is a comparison I think nobody expected yeah, and the point is, and I'm going back, I've, I've spoken to Philip Davis in person about this, is that if racing doesn't take it seriously, then no one else is going to take the threat to, to racing seriously. And you'll say, well, uh, the, the sport's been encouraging everyone to write to their MPs for months now, but it, it's m more a question of the intensity with which, and on a daily basis, uh, government ministers are being lobbied by senior personnel from, from the sport. It's got to be relentless if you're going to make any 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 real impact and I, there probably is a sense where people think well it'll probably be okay once we've we worked through it all i think what he's saying is it definitely won't be okay unless you unless you make some real change and that real change begins with overhauling the gambling commission yeah, um, and the Gambling Commission's uh, commissions, six of their commissioners are due to leave over a staggered process and, uh, and for, uh, until November of, of next year. There were interviews from, from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport in April, but no sign of appointments just yet. The Racing Post has been pointing this out this week. Um, Andrew Black has wondered out, out loud today whether that means it's too late for industry representation. Well, unless people from the from the industry has have already applied or, or been asked to apply, then that could well be the case. Um, he's said that the Gambling Commission is run like a private fiefdom. Um, and I, I do think, I mean, we, I, I can't, I don't know the level of lobbying that uh, the the racing industry is achieving that is that is something that ministers would be better placed to judge from their side of things. Um, however, the um, sort of anti-gambling voice lobbyists have got a, a, a very, very well funded very well organized um the bookmakers the betting industry have also also obviously have a long history of being able to lobby the people who are re and, and the racing industry as well have, you know clearly if we wind back to um uh, covid uh racing was one of the first sports to be back on so clearly it has an ability to lobby and government can and has shown evidence of listening to them but the the voice that is unheard are the the vast 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 majority of people who enjoy a bet who do not have an issue and who are going to be caught up with these proposed arbitrary and onerous triggers for affordability and they're the people who are not having a being properly heard in this conversation and that is down to government and that is down to the gambling commission and they need to listen to those ordinary people yeah. uh, well as these well-established lobbying bodies and i think the key point there is even though you could you could say to it to a wider public saying right well only three percent of people are going to be caught up in this or three percent of accounts going to be caught up in this i think if you if you try to work out it, who out of racing's you know, small but sort of dedicated fan base 
what sort of percentage of that of those sort of punters are going to be caught up in this? Then the then the answer would be significantly higher. So it, it, it's a, it's a question of of chipping away at ratings already fast eroding sort of fan block, if you like, and and that is something that the sport can can ill afford. And that that's something I think is it's a struggle to get that through to yeah, with no interest in the sport. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that in terms of people who enjoy a bet on horse racing, the estimate of 3% is laughably underestimating the number of people who'd be caught up in it. I'd, I'd be caught up in, in, in the affordability checks. Would you be, Nick? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be prevalent ac- ac- across the uh, people who just have an interest in the sport. And so it is not proportionate, these proposals, um, with 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 the problem, and it is not targeted. You, you know, the, this the all of these um, measures, the way that the gambling commission have currently presented them, are are on on. They're not they're not frictionless. You know they're they're not they're not going to be trusted. There's an underestimation of the impact, and it doesn't even help. You know you're going to be actually catching into your net people who shouldn't be there, who are who are able to. Um, bet without issue and instead you're you're rather than um help the 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 people that they're that this movement purports to help i.e those people who are uh, vulnerable to addiction it just basically closes them closes them down and pushes and pushes them away and pushes the problem you know out into the ether you know you know the gambling commission has committed to driving down the instances you know this of, of problem gamblers as they would would call them i'm sure the data would if the if these uh, measures went through would say that that was the case but would they actually have tackled the issue of course they wouldn't have done um so it, I'm, I'm afraid this needs total overhaul and the government needs to realize that what they are are proposing certainly how it is being executed by the gambling commission's proposal is is just embarrassingly off the money <laughs> um it, it just it it doesn't help the people it should help and it adversely affects people who shouldn't be affected well, now our weekly opportunity to showcase what is happening at the National Horse Racing Museum in Newmarket. You heard about the extension of the Banksy exhibition last week. I can give you important news now that there is an extension to another hugely popular exhibition, which is there at the moment, which is the Household Cavalry Mounted Regiment, the Coronation Year exhibition, which is a, a very special exhibition by the photographic artist Ripley, uh, who, who joins me now and who's created 12 large-scale portraits of the household cavalry. Um, Ripley, it's gone down so well, you're extending for quite some time now. Yes, yes, thank you for having me on the show, by the way. Um, But yes, it's extending yet again uh, up until the Newmarket Open Weekend. So um, that's the 23rd and 24th of September. So um, yes, everything will be removed on the 25th, but yes, extending all through September, which is is fantastic, because super happy with the way the images look in the gallery space there. And you have you have a real history with with not just the, the household cavalry and, and with horses, but but also with, with with thoroughbreds and some of the best known thoroughbreds that 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 we've we've witnessed in the in the last few years. Which which work has given you the most satisfaction? Um, a couple for very very different reasons. I think one was 
obviously the portrait I did of Estimate for the late Queen, um, which was, a, a, again, an un unexpected commission to get that early on, really. I'd only been producing pictures, for, uh, you know, equine imagery for probably four or five years at that point. So that was a, that was a very unexpected event to happen, and, um, and it... And it, and it went down um you know really really well so so i was extremely pleased with that picture again quite a quite a sort of um i wouldn't say traditional look it wasn't like it was uh, done in a stud uh, farm or anything it was pictured outside sandringham house but that was sort of referencing old old paintings really um uh, where the thoroughbred was sort of the ferrari out of the day parked in front of your stately home so um so it's sort of playing playing with all those perceptions and um and things with estimate, but that worked really nicely. And then sort of, again, playing with the genre, probably another picture, which I wasn't sort of totally sure for the time, but I've come to love a lot more, was the portrait I did of California Crown. Mm. Again, a very different picture, but it's in front of the um, uh, Frank Gehry Design Disney Concert Hall in LA, which wow. was the biggest, biggest, chromiest thing I could find in California. That, so that's very, fantastic. This is all very literal, but it, but it, again, it was just sort of playing with the whole perceived perception of the genre, maybe more more in painting terms rather than photographic terms. But um, but all, all good fun. Well, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled that the that the exhibition is is extended right through till till the Newmarket Open weekend, and uh, you're donating half of your profits from from this to the Household Cavalry Foundation. I wonder if you might tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, yeah, so the, the foundation, um, uh, Household Cavalry Foundation is the official charity for the Household Cavalry um, and it um, supports um, veterans, um, the families of, of injured soldiers and veterans and all the rest of it, and um, uh, as well as the horses and not only, only the horses which are, are currently in service, but the retired horses for rehoming and everything like that. So, um, and I think it was always my, my intention when I, when I originally had the idea to do these portraits off the cavalry a long time ago i think the original uh, spark in my mind was about 2000 and and 12 um and it sort of started coming to reality about 2014 so um so it's been a long long process this whole thing but but in my mind it was always that i was going to have a charitable element to it um and uh, and yeah so 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 it's worked out lovely with them all the very best thanks so much thanks nick thank you well, the year is marching on, um, and would you believe it, the nominations for the 20th edition of the Godolphin Thoroughbred Industry and Employee Awards will open uh, early next month, in early September, formally. And in advance of that, it's a huge pleasure to welcome a, a new member of the judging panel to the team, uh, the Chief Executive of the National Stud, uh, Anna Kerr. It's been a, an amazing season for the National Stud as well, and uh, exploits have been um, headlined and highlighted by what Stradivarius has been up to in his first season covering mares, which has been a great success, maybe more of which later. But Anna, first of all, welcome to the to the judging panel for the Godolphin Awards. And to what extent is this part of a, a major drive to to try and make studs more aware of these? We know that the, the trainers are very good at getting the nominations in, but the studs may be less so to this point. And um, thanks, Nick. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think with racing industry staff, they have NARS and they have those those unions to to represent them, and it's it, it started in racing very much, didn't it? So this drive to include our whole workforce as a thoroughbred industry workforce is is really important. And you do see in people when we've nominated somebody every year for the last four or five years. 
and you do see when when someone is nominated how much that recognition means um and it can just really give that extra layer of thank you i guess to to your employees but you can't you can't do in other ways so really excited to be involved and really looking forward to the process and you know clearly there there is satisfaction to be to be garnered from 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 working on a stud otherwise people people wouldn't do it and you know bringing bringing new life into the world is perhaps you know the most fundamental and important thing you can you can do but uh, the the sort of uh, recognition isn't isn't maybe as as tangible you know i think we become much better at, at recognizing grooms and and stable staff on the race course particularly when they're leading up horses in high profile races or when they're leading in winners and trophies and names in the race card you don't have something quite so tangible in, in the stud world no, you don't. And one of the things that uh, that always makes me very proud and uh, is when our owners come. Um, we would have quite a broad client base. And when owners come to see their horses or say if they're coming to see their foal for the first time after it's been born and that kind of thing, and the way our team tell, talk to them about their mares and about their foals and, about, and tell them the whole story. You know, I was looking at yearlings yesterday and the... Um, Lisa was saying to me she's just like her mum you know she's she eats the same way as her she behaves the same way as her and it was a mare that's been with us for the last five or six years and this is her last fall and they know it's like knowing a family intimately you know when they when they are showing you their foals their yearlings all the progeny and they're they're invested in what's happening on the track then with the runners it goes very very deep and it's i mean they're just like an extended family really if that doesn't sound too corny but but i think anyone who works in our industry will understand what i mean um and the the we did a big how can we make things better for you on a daily basis we do that once a year just i'm always saying please bring us suggestions to our team and the biggest thing was they want to they want to look after the horses. All that matters to them is is the welfare of of the animals in their care, and I think that that's that says it all about what you need to work in our industry and, and what it is that we want to thank them for. Thank you to Anna. Thank you to all my guests today. Lydia is still with me, and Lydia, I'm hoping has a tip for me. It can be for whenever you like. It's Saturday at the Sugar Cup at Ascot, so it's the two ten the Sayers handicap. It's Pridwin. I think he's going to enjoy uh, the slight ease in opposition. I think it, he's been running consistently well this season. He's got to prove his stamina, but it doesn't look like there's a great deal of, race, of pace on. I've been, I'm, I'm buoyed by the uh, dry um, forecast. There does seem to be some rain due on Saturday, but hopefully it won't land too much because I'm not completely sure about how much he'll love deep ground. But with drying conditions and an and a ease in opposition, Pridwen in the 210 at Ascot on Saturday. Lydia, thank you very much. We've covered just about everything, I think, uh, on uh, on today's show, certainly being to all corners of the globe. That was Friday, August the 11th. Charlotte will be back later with more uh, on tomorrow's Shergar Cup. Uh, that is uh, going to be uploaded after nine o'clock this evening. But from uh, all of this daily team, we will be back on Monday. See you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.